Welcome to Getting Curious, or Bienvenidos a Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Maeve Hahn, where I ask her, why are we so obsessed with dogs? Especially my three, because they're so perfect. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm so excited for today's episode because it is about one of my very favorite topics in the world. Dogs. It's perfect. (laughs) Literally dogs. I was about to say, and not Michelle Kwan. It is about dogs, honey. I have a household full of cats and dogs, five cats, three dogs. And if you know anything about me, you know that it's, I have just an unconditional love and obsession with kittens and puppers. I've learned so much about them from our episodes on cat and dog behavior and like animal cognition, but we've never fully explored the relationship between humans and dogs on Getting Curious. So today we're getting curious about that story and the science behind human-canine kinship. And there is no one better in the world to tell us about that than Dr. Maeve Hahn who is an anthrozoologist researching more than human kinship between dogs and their humans with a focus on ethnographic storytelling. Her PhD documented the experiences and implications of human-canine kinship. She is also an artist, and her illustrations, which are so beautiful and, like, gripping, I just am such a fan, are an extension of her academic work. They explore non-textual ways in which our kinship can be understood and communicated. And can I also just say, Maeve, it's giving like modern David Hockney. I don't know if anyone said that, but it's like, it's a really chic. How are you? Welcome to Getting Curious. Thank you for coming on our show. Thank you so much for having me. And oh my God, what a, what a praise. <laughs> Thank you. I have to catch our listeners up on what happened in our tech check right before we started. So Maeve was telling us that she is in Edinburgh and then it really triggered me for my time that I spent in Edinburgh because my sister got married in St. Andrews and then I got to go to Edinburgh a little bit when I was like 17 and like fell in love with it when I was like 17. But then of course, JK fucking Rowling became a transphobe in like 2018 and now I can't even mind my own business and watch like Harry Potter in peace. And then we went on this whole thing about a lot of stuff, but like we just are obsessed with Maeve. We're obsessed with Edinburgh. Also, sidebar, I'm going to not do this anymore because this is two days in a row, but I don't know what Erica and Zara's problem are that they keep booking me people with like distractingly beautiful like eyebrows and facial structure. Maybe you could do a tutorial (laughs) on like your TikTok or Instagram about it because the brows are really browing. We're really loving it. But we have to talk about dog and human kinship. So you use ethnographic storytelling in your work. So I thought we could start by like talking about personal stories about our dogs, but also ethnographic, darling. I know I've done over 300 episodes of Getting Curious and I've learned a lot of words. And I know what ethnographic means, but for our listeners who maybe don't, including myself, (laughs) what does ethnographic (laughs) actually mean? I think of it as more of an approach to writing than a genre of writing. It's something that puts an emphasis on storytelling. It's something that's more about the the mundane everyday life rather than grand theories and, you know, how, how the world works. So it's an approach that allows me to look at the nitty gritty details of daily life that we share with our dogs and try to understand larger concepts such as kinship or race or queerness, things like that through those details. Ah, oh, thank God. Okay, great. Yeah, we did it. Okay, so the first story that I thought about having kinship with my first childhood dog, who was this yellow lab named Ginny, 
it was my first thought that I had, but it's like kind of an embarrassing story. And I was like, I don't know. And it's also like, as Michelle Buteau would say, like low lying comedic fruit because it is about a fart. But I will just say that I, I guess I will just share that story first. So I'm minding my own business. I'm seven years old. I'm pretty sure I was eating cinnamon toast crunch at the kitchen table. And it was like before school and I was eating my cereal and our yellow lab Jenny was sitting next to me. And I didn't know that it was going to happen, but I admitted, which like, of all time for me was like the highest pitch fart I've ever had. And the wooden chair that I was sitting on made it even like higher pitched. Like just like the the angles were all in such a way that it literally was like, like this really high pitch. And it also was like the longest duration of fart I think I've ever had in my entire life. Like it took like 20 seconds. And Ginny, as the fart continued, as it progressed, first her head was like, you know, parallel to the ground. But as the fart happened, she was going like, like her head kept turning because she was like, what is that noise and why is it so high pitched? So by the end of the fart, her head had turned basically like, you know, 90 degrees so that her eyes were like perpendicular to the ground and her ears were like totally like perked up because she was like, what the hell is that noise? And then when the fart stopped, she immediately like righted her head so that it was like back parallel to the ground and her ears like went even more perked up and her eyes like got huge and she looked at me and then she like shook her head and she was like, how did you just turn into like a human dog whistle like she didn't and I didn't even understand because I was like that was so like high pitched and long lasting like no one was there to witness it besides her so and I just felt like we both were like equally shocked so that's my story of my first (laughs) kinship with like me and my childhood dog but I do have like other more recent ones like all my dogs right now are puppies like my oldest dog is like two and a half and just when they recall, like just when they come back, when I tell them to, uh, especially Rose, who is like the most beautiful, big headed, like adorable, like pit bull, Pyrenees mountain dog, like German shepherd, Australian cattle dog, because I got their embark DNA done mix. So she's like a big, like, you know, waist height, gorgeous bounding girl who's like nine months old and went from like nine pounds to like 65 pounds in like nine months. Like she is our girl. (laughs) And then we have Georgie who's only like four months old and he's so cute. I have still a dog who is like still my baby Pablo, but we had to rehome him because he did have like biting incidents and it was like the worst thing of all time. And like, he just was like five when we got him, but you know, there was so much like moments of like, cause we worked so hard with him for so long and he just couldn't, he just could not not bite. He just, and he'd be like, fuck, I didn't mean to. Like, I'm sorry. I like it. But like, yeah, it was just like we were like not the right home. He was like way too busy, way too much hustle and bustle. He needs mm-hmm. like he didn't like go to like an air quote farm. He like actually lives in a farm who like was our dog trainer who still does like mm-hmm. do our dog training. But it's like a farm with these like two nice teenagers who work there. And it's like the same people with the same dogs at the same times at the same day. Like he needs consistency. Poor little baby Pablo does. But they're all just babies. And so it's like they don't really like understand everything yet because they're babies but they're my babies and i love them so of much. of course yeah <laughs> as you should i need a gorgeous <laughs> story of you and your puppers please sure so frank is my current dog and he's my first dog that's like my own dog rather than a family dog well a few years ago i actually went through a really really horrible breakup the person that i got frank with left us quite abruptly and said that, you know, the dog was the main reason why he was leaving. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> the look on your face right now, just like, yeah. And when he moved out, when like all of his stuff was gone, Frank went around looking for him in the flat. 
but he just like sniffed in every corner, checked every room. The, the way that he like looked at me and whimpered, like he was just like, I don't understand what's going on. Like, where is this person? He was so very clearly confused about this like sudden change. Yeah, it really kind of broke my heart doubly. We were both heartbroken. We were bo- both grieving. And he never used to be a really snuggly dog. But something really changed, I think, when we grieved together. I was never out of his sight. And a part of his body was always touching a part of mine, like whether it was his tail on my foot or his paw on my hand, his head on my lap. He just followed me everywhere. He was attuned to like the tiniest movement that I made. He learned how to open all the doors in the flat so he could be, you know, just watching me at all times. Like he learned how to open the bathroom door so that he could watch me pee. Um, but he was just always there and he was just so patient with me. And I've, I've always loved dogs, but I never felt this kind of love with anyone but Frank. And I, I knew then that we were, you know, we were in it for life. Oh my God, that's so cute. <laughs> I did see this comedian the other day on Instagram, which I have to say, I completely agree with. She was like, you know, dog people. I love dogs and I also love cats. Like, because I'm not a monster and I love both, but I don't understand why dog people are so specific about like, oh, I love dogs. And then like, you bring up a cat and they're like, I'm not a cat person. She's like saying that like dog people are the ones who are like trying to like make all these definitions about it, which I was like, I do think that's true as someone who is like, you know, as a cat woman, I do have five cats and I also love dogs. But I didn't get dogs until later in life. But I will just say this, since I've went from one to three dogs in the last two years, I literally have people who I can tell judge me my entire 20s and 30s for having multiple cats. And now that I have dogs, they're like, oh, thank God. Like, I knew you were one of us. And I was like, weirdo, I've always been one of you, fucking weirdo. Like, I love all of them. Like, you're not a dog person who, like, secretly hates on cats, right? No. My first, like, adulthood pet was actually a cat. Ah, so you love them I love cats. Yeah, you have, like, a great heart. I knew that you did. I knew that our production (laughs) team vetted you correctly. I I knew that. I love that so much. (laughs) But speaking to our love of dogs and the stories that we shared... Maybe not the farting one as much. But what do you think these stories capture about human canine kinship? I think maybe that like not only is kinship made up of like fun and warm and joyful experiences, but it's also made of moments of sorrow and pain and grief. So, you know, the not so fun stuff. And I think it taught me so much about what it means to love somebody how it's not just about the good times, but also, and maybe especially about the bad times. So Frank and I weathered a lot of tough things together and it certainly made our kinship stronger. And I think it taught me that love is inherently unconditional and that it endures when, even when relationships might falter. Yes. And I also think like, and this is part of what I'm so excited for our episode about, for whatever reason, like, It doesn't matter, like, age, race, gender, every type of human. Like, so many humans have these, like, really special, unexplainably close bonds, like, with their canine can. Like, their family. And it's like, I've lost a cat unexpectedly. I've had to rehome Pablo. And, like, my heart bleeds for Pablo. Like, when I see pictures of him still, like, it literally feels like someone ripped out my spleen, like, with no anesthesia. Like, I still cry about it. I just think it's beautiful that so many of us humans have this, like, love for our pets and specifically canines. I just think that's so special. And if only we could, like, treat each other 
well, if we could treat each other sometimes as well as some people treat their dogs, because some people are asshole to dogs, and those people should Anyway, how do you approach dogs as an anthrozoologist? And when were you just like minding your business and then you're like, (laughs) anthrozoology, I think I'm going to do that. It's all thanks to Frank, actually. Yeah, he's truly an inspiration to me, to us all. We love Frank. (laughs) He's just lying down next to me on the floor. (laughs) And Frank, he's so cute. He is. He's such a good boy. I got him in Toronto, where where I'm from, and we moved here together to Edinburgh. And it was, it was so scary. Like I didn't know anyone here. I'm just like, I guess I'm moving there to do a PhD. Like I don't really know where my life is going, but at least I'm not doing it alone. Edinburgh is possibly one of the most dog friendly places that I've ever lived. I can bring him to pubs, bars, restaurants, basically anywhere that's not like the library or the grocery store. I can kind of bring him in and no one really bats an eye. It's amazing. (laughs) I went to Edinburgh on tour last year and we brought Elton. They had like a dog bed in our hotel and like little Elton treats. Like Elton was feeling special in Edinburgh. (laughs) It is. It's like such a great city for puppers. But so... So you moved there and then did you know that you were going to get into anthrozoology then, like before you moved to Edinburgh? No, I think the combination of, you know, having Frank and having Frank like in this city specifically led me to, oh my God, like people relate to dogs in very different ways here. Because in Toronto or anywhere in Canada, it's very difficult to take your dog places because like by law you are not allowed to have you know dogs coming in if you're serving food or drinks so it's very much demarcated quite partially where dog friendly spaces are and aren't whereas here it doesn't really seem that way like dogs are seen as more of like well of course we bring our dogs like they're they're our kin they're my family I love that. I, we, are we all moving to Edinburgh? Is that what I'm learning from today? So, so you get into like the track of like anthrozoologist when you get to Edinburgh. So, and now you are an anthrozoologist. So, like, what questions are you asking about human canine kinship? The question that I'm most invested in is, I think, the broadest question I grapple with. It's how can we live a good life together? Because I think ultimately kinship speaks to the ways in which we navigate the troubles of life, which there are many. And from this broad question, I kind of branch into more capillary questions like, how do we get to know our dogs? And why does it matter that we sometimes treat our dogs like children? Or what kinds of economies and ecologies are at play in more than human kinship with dogs? How do dogs figure into experiences of and responses to loneliness? How can we form new perspectives and frameworks for understanding our entanglements better? Okay, so like what research and archives do you draw on in your work as an anthrozoologist? Because I'm trained in qualitative ethnographic research, stories from our everyday life are my main archive for primary data. I basically collect dog stories from dog people much like what you're doing with me. (laughs) And some other sources, especially for secondary data, range from, you know, things like YouTube videos made by dog trainers, blog posts, Facebook comments, 
encyclopedia, podcasts, but ultimately ethnographers are often not really concerned with big theories, but rather with mundane details that provide, I guess, surprising insights into our existence. It's all about finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. I love that. So what's the scope of your work then, like, scientifically, historically, and, like, culturally with, like, how you approach it now? I do ground my research on different theories and thoughts surrounding domestication broadly, but I think I'm more interested in the cultural implications or the the so what of it. So I try to understand why it matters that we have been mutually domesticated with dogs, why we should care about more than human kinship at all. So how do we define that, like, more than human kinship? I think it's a kind of persevering relatedness that goes beyond the species boundary. And I think it also expands this notion of kinship, which, historically speaking, it's something that's been quite human-centric and also in the anthropological understanding of it. But there are also other terms that people use, like beyond human kinship or multi-species kinship. But I think I prefer more than human kinship because it's acknowledges that where we're starting from is our humanity, which as much as we can try, we can't really shed. It also attempts for for more, more than human, even if it's technically impossible. And I think it matters that we try. My cat Genevieve Baby G is actually a princess trapped in this cat's body. (laughs) She is like so regal. I don't know where she was from. I don't know what happened, but I know that she is royalty and she is like not your basic cat like she's very smart she's very extremely baby and she's very extremely cuddle loves people but specifically not just anybody like me my husband patty like loves us so much like she is a baby and she is also a princess baby beep beep so i do know that she is more than human because she is perfect in every way and in fact (laughs) i have a song for her and matilda and it goes a little something like this You are the love of my life You're so perfect and cute In every single way You know that it's true You're the love of... It's like that, you know what I'm saying? It's like, and then it goes up and up until you can't... And then until it's out of range. So that's really interesting. I think it's hilarious that I thought I could get through like a science episode about dogs and cats and then not show you what... Like, this is what I like devolve into when I go home. Like... (laughs) Like I like I only call Larry my oldest cat Lewing. I lose it. I lose my marbles and I'm not afraid of it. So I'm just embracing that and that's that's what's happening. So what makes this cross-species relationship so unique? One of the most influential people in my research, his name is Jakob von Oxkol, who used this concept of Umwelt to understand how our perspectives are specific to the species that we are, because we're given the body that is specific to the species that we are. So this Umwelt refers to the world as it is experienced by different organisms as members of their species, which is something that's particular to our bodies and mechanisms as dictated by the physiological limits. And I think what makes our kinship with dogs unique is that human umwelt and canine umwelt, which are quite different, happen to work really well together to bring us to where we are. And 
it worked well enough to go beyond just the functional relationships that we see in, you know, other relationships that we have with, for example, farm animals. And this contemporary pet culture, like the one that you just described to me as, you know, you, you baby your, your cats, you baby your dogs. That's only actually growing and changing in really captivating ways. Ah. Yeah, I started to get defensive for Genevieve, though, because I was like, she's actually princess baby. She's not, like, some basic <laughs> baby. Like, she's princess baby. So, like, she's actually, like, quite refined. So, which leads mm-hmm. me to my next question. I think you should be pretty clear by now that I'm, like, borderline psychotic Catwoman. So, as I ask you this, <laughs> I want to make sure that you, like, don't step the fuck out of line. Okay, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I don't want to, like, Fair enough. harness your academia, but, like... <laughs> Don't say some shit that's going to end our interview early, okay? Which I, it couldn't happen I got because you. I love you so much. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I just want to make sure that we're like on the same page going into this question. How does it compare to say like human feline kinship? And before we get it too binary, there are obviously cats that are much more dog-like in personality, such as all of my cats, who are like way more outgoing, especially Lamy. Bug the first, my screensaver, he like slept oh. under covers. Like he literally slept under covers, like didn't like to be over the covers, like needed to be under, like could not physically be close enough to you, like loved, but not just anybody more me. But so, yeah. So, but like you also think that like cats also have like gorgeous umbelt who love humans and like humans love their cats. And it's like not even a competition. So it's not even a competition. That's exactly it. Yeah, I I don't think any kind of kinship can really be compared even within the same species, right? So for instance, even among dog people, we see all the time that they have different relationships with their dogs. But of course, to bring in Umwelt again, cats and dogs perceive and experience the world quite differently in many ways. Oh, like what? Like what? I mean, I think about, you know how cats have like vertical pupils? Yes. And dogs don't? So that's an evolutionary trait that, you know, big, big cats also have. So like jaguars and pumas and whatnot. And it's because they, they can see, you know, vertically quite high. Whereas goats, for example, have horizontal peoples so that they can see more broadly because that's the kind of environment that they live in. So how we perceive the world is like visually quite different. You're just looking at me like, what? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, what else? So they're, so they're pupils. And then because cats can like jump higher. Yeah, they live in height, right? Okay, when I'm holding one of my cats or dogs really close to my face, like not kissing its nose 15,000 times, <laughs> I sometimes wonder like when I see the reflection of my face looking all weird in their pupil, I'm like, is that how I look to them? Like, is it like, like, <laughs> is that like what they're seeing? Like that, you know, who you can like kind of see a reflection in like their eyes when you're like, like kissing their little <laughs> noses. Like, I do wonder like, is that how I like, do they just think I have like this weird ass face that like just always kisses their nose? But that's like not really a question. But do you ever wonder that? <laughs> I do wonder that. I do wonder how Frank sees me. I do wonder how other dogs that I, you know, come across perceive me. And do they only like us for food or do you think they love us anyway? I think they love us anyway. I know they love us anyway. But mostly for food. It doesn't hurt, right? <laughs> yeah, because we like feed them and food they love that food. So do you think it's true that like a person can be a dog's best friend? Like I know that they're ours and that we like love them more than anything of all time. But do you think that they really think that we're their best friend? Like do they love us a lot? 
So when we think about, you know, human, human kinship, when we love somebody, that doesn't mean that we never act out against them. It doesn't mean that, you know, we never make mistakes with them. Right. And I think what shows love and friendship and real companionship is how we get through it and how we choose to understand each other when, when those mistakes happen. Yes, totally. So what do we like mischaracterize when we anthropomorphize dogs? Anthropomorphize dogs. Anthropomorphize. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, I think anthropomorphizing dogs ignores that they are fundamentally different animals from us. Their bodies and senses work quite differently. And there's no way as of now for humans to experience the world that dogs do. Oh, I um, hate that. Yeah, I want to know what I it know. sounds like and stuff. <laughs> and what does Princess Beep Beep think? Dog cats too. I, I want to know. know both. I'm so curious. Anyway, yeah, we're... yeah, we just have no idea what they're really thinking or what they're really feeling. Did you hear anything about the prairie dogs though? About how like they speak their language so intensely that they can be like, that's like a six foot tall guy. And that's like a five <laughs> foot like lady who's wearing like a pink shirt. They literally like tell each other. Mm-hmm. But can we know that for sure? I'm really tangenting my <laughs> life today. So, but when we do anthropomorphize dogs, we do miss it. Like they are not actually human babies, no matter how much we know to the contrary, in fact, that they are human babies, but really they aren't. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose like in all fairness, we can't ever really know what other people are thinking or feeling either. But when we anthropomorphize non-human animals, I think we are choosing to see them really quite conveniently through our human lenses to think of them as just like us. And I think we really miss a lot of opportunities there to understand dogs as who they are rather than what might make easier sense to us. Yes, because Rosie Posey, she wants to go out and run. She has a lot of energy to burn. So it's like not about her being like a calm little girl, like... She's got a lot of energy, so I got to make sure she runs. Like that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So have humans and dogs always been snuggled up on a couch together? Like, if not, when do we think that we started to become best friends with dogs, historically? So, I mean, even from my personal life, and I'm I'm 29, so it's not that, you know, historically long ago, um, I can tell you that that wasn't the case. We weren't always snuggled up on the couch together. I grew up in Seoul and my grandparents had a bunch of dogs who were strictly outdoor working dogs and they guarded the grounds, they chased away pests and they got fed to do their jobs. And this is not to say that like my grandparents didn't love their dogs or care for their dogs, but rather that the relationship that people have with their dogs is temporally, spatially, historically, and culturally contingent. The story of domestication generally or pet keeping is, I think, multiple stories, all of which are kind of uncertain because how can we ever know for sure? No one is alive to tell us how it started. But it's theorized to have started maybe somewhere between 12 and 14,000 years ago. But what we do know is that it's not like a neat and linear progression that took dogs from wild wolves to tame dogs as we know today. Why do we think 12 to 14,000 years ago? Like, what evidence do we have? Like, why do they think that? They see like an old foundation and there's like dog bones real close to human bones or something. They're like, oh, they must have been best friends. Like, they must have been important enough that they were like, you know, either buried closely or like stuff like that. 
Yeah. And, you know, there have also been records showing that dogs were used as food. So we would see, you know, dog bones or oh, dog fuck. DNA of some sort in like uh, human yes. fecal I would have not, I would not Elton Belton or Georgie Porgy yeah. or Rosie. Yeah. So, but it's not linear and it was like different <laughs> based on how that relationship evolved or like it was different based on where you were like over the last 14,000 years. Yeah. And that's, you know, across the globe, various different environments and cultures. Pet keeping, as we know today, at least in this part of the world where I do my research, probably started in the 19th century Victorian England when pedigree dog breeding increasingly became this like middle class hobby in Britain. It was based off of like horse and cattle breeding and they kind of adapted that practice to the dog which was more affordable, basically, for the middle class to participate in. So that's like 1800s. We've also learned on the podcast about like Francis Galton and like his whole like eugenics and like he was like Darwin's first cousin. And that was like around the 1790s that he started like doing a lot of that pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's interesting the ways that we also sometimes kind of like, like, telegraph that sort of thing like onto humans in terms of like you know if a woman doesn't do this or if a man doesn't do that like just it's just interesting that a lot of those theories start around this time like the 1790s 1800s so prior to this do you think that the human canine interactions were more like farm like chase away the rats like but maybe there was some offshoots of like, you know, dog and human best friend. We're like, oh my God, like that one was really sweet. Yeah, dogs probably served, you know, multiple functions. They could have helped with hunting, farming, like protection of the grounds. And yeah, there are also records that show that they were food. Yeah. But again, those stories of dogs and humans are not linear. So for example, while there are a lot of pet dogs today who get to like luxuriate in the warmth of a home. There are still working dogs that live outdoors who are perfectly well adapted to that life. And there are also places that still eat dogs. So how we relate to dogs is not only about our species, but also our diverse contemporary cultures. Totes. Jackson Galaxy, who we love, cat expert, he briefly explained mm-hmm. us that humans co-evolved with dogs. Like, can you break down like more of that idea of co-evolution for us and how we went from... 14,000 years ago to now? Yeah, so co-evolution refers to this process of like reciprocal changes that happen as a result of interactions between different species. So for example, certain plants and insects might co-evolve to make pollination more efficient and effective. I think dogs and humans are a really great and interesting example of co-evolution because it's, it's clear in dog breeding practices, the kind of evolutionary pressures that humans exert on dogs. It's almost a complete control if we're talking about like pedigree dogs who are like registered with kennel club and their breeding is very, very tightly controlled. And humans breed pedigree dogs to look a certain way and they would even call puppies that don't conform to the breed standards. But recently I actually started thinking about what kind of selection pressures dogs might exert on humans. And got really interested in how people use their or even somebody else's dogs on dating apps. I do too. Like Frank features on my dating profile. And being a dog person is a selection pressure here in a way. Yeah, because if you're allergic to dogs and cats, like it's a non-starter for me. Like it would just never work. That's exactly it. Yeah, like being a dog person is something that dog people prioritize quite highly in looking for a mate. So yeah, that's kind of a 
future research avenue that I'm really interested in. I love that. So it's like Georgian England is the time historically, though, where like pet keeping becomes more like common across like class and like just socially. Like, is that the first like society where like in the like stuff that you've researched and like it starts to become more of the norm as we know it, like in Western cultures? Mm -hmm. Victorian England. Victorian England. Have we seen like an evolution like since then or like a continued more like contemporary evolution? I would probably not call it evolution because it has certain like a biological tone to it where it happens like on a genetic level and maybe more we cultural. Can call it a cultural change yeah. or new phenomena that sure. arise. Yeah. And I think thinking about dogs as children is actually a pretty new cultural phenomenon that we see with our our pet dogs. Yeah, because it's like, I just think I don't really ever want to have human children. And so to me, like this feels, and also like for people who do have kids, like I don't like when they'll be like, yeah, I know you like think you love your animals. Like when you have like, you know, a human baby, it's like just this other, totally like other thing. And I'm like, mm. I don't know. Like I've cleaned up a lot of shit and barf like from all sorts of carpets. And when you have <laughs> five cats and three dogs, like granted, they don't like speak in a language. It's like, so it's not maybe like not that much emotional labor, but as far as like the physical labor of like, mm. I got to go home and let their fucking asses out. I got to like, it's a lot of work. Like I feel like my husband and I spend like hours, hours, like, mm -hmm. you know, like, so I feel like it is again, not that it's a competition, but it's like, it ain't nothing, you know? And I do love the fuck out of them. Like, I'd walk in front of a bus for them, you know? I would too. <laughs> yeah. So I do think that, like, one thing I'm picking up on is that, like, as our relationship has progressed, like, our human-canine, like, kinship, it does seem like it's different, you know, globally, like, cultures. But why? Like, why is that evolution so different and so widespread? You know, this evolution didn't, all happen at the same time and not in the same way across different cultures because organisms adapt to their environments and across the globe, there are so many different kinds of environments, like different climates, different terrains, different ecosystems. So it makes sense that humans and dogs also co-evolved differently in different places through the ages. Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods, who I think are married but they work together and they study dog cognition. They put out this theory that maybe it wasn't really like the survival of the fittest, which is a phrase that gets thrown a lot um, in evolutionary biology, but rather the survival of the friendliest on the dog's part. So the friendly, you know, less cautious, more outgoing wolves effectively kind of inch their ways into human lives maybe for food, for warmth, for shelter, and then the rest is history. <laughs> so are all of our contemporary dogs like literally evolved from wolves? As far as we know, <laughs> yes. That's cuckoo. Wow. That's really interesting. So basically, like if we were to categorize like the different types of dogs, like it feels like, there's like your more like outdoor working dogs, farm dogs. Then there's like our like kind of home dogs. And then there's like food 
dogs still, like <laughs> dogs that we eat or whatever, like in certain places. Has there been any place where you're like, oh, that's different or like interest? Like, that's cool. Like they do like Christmas dinner, like at a table for dogs. Like what's like the most interesting ass shit you've found <laughs> researching this? Something that I'm really fascinated by is actually this like emerging pet culture in Korea. I'm Korean by, you know, my ethnicity. And whenever I go back, I would see like tiny fluffy white dogs that are like groomed to perfection being pushed around in a pram. <laughs> just like, this is, it's something that I, I, I can't really wrap my head around mainly because I have a border collie who's a working dog. One of my friends, one of my good friends who also has a tiny lap dog named Snoopy. He's precious and he's very cat-like. But yeah, my, my friend Kitty says, you know, the, the grip that these crusty white dogs have on Asian women. <laughs> <laughs> and I think about that a lot, that like there's these weird typologies of what kinds of people seem to like, like what kinds of dogs. Yeah, I struggle with like, I mean, I do love all dogs, but I will say that I struggle with like a secret that's not so secret because I talk about it a lot. But like, I do kind of secretly judge people who have like really expensive, like designer dogs and cats just because like mm -hmm. I've come into all of mine, like not that I'm like better. I just, I prefer the narrative of like a rescue pup. I just prefer the narrative. And I also like think that all dogs are like so fucking cute. But what does that mean? Is that just me being like a judgmental bitch? Or like, is that something that we study like why people may want one type of, over another or like, you know, rescue or puppy based mill, like whatever, like, what do we think about that? So I used to be very much like, uh, you know, I, I would rather always adopt than, than shop. But I actually quite recently when I finished my research, changed my mind on it because I've seen a lot of people who, like you said, it's, it's a narrative of rescue. This, I, I'm adopting this dog who is in need, but that's not always the right thing to do for your circumstance. So rescue dogs often get rehomed again and again and again because people bring in these dogs thinking, oh, like I will be the rescuer to this dog who is in need without really realizing what kind of need might this dog have. Yes. And like you said with Pablo, living on a farm with a routine schedule is a better life for him yes. than living in the hustle and bustle of city life. Because I definitely imparted like my need. Like I was like, like Mark and I were like, we want a dog. And then it was like the height of COVID and like all the dogs were like in like fosters, like in homes. So like the shelter, there's only like four dogs and like there was a bonded pair of like 13 year old sisters. And then the other one just like clearly didn't love us. But Pablo was like, love but like he really like once we lived with him for two years like it was like a struggle like it was yeah. I mean it was like three weeks of like pink cloud but then after about three weeks like if there was any change in schedule or like an extra person or like we tried to take him to New York because we like left Texas and went to New York for mm -hmm. a few weeks and that like Manhattan almost sent him off like he was just like literally yeah. like shaking all the time, so scared by the noises, too many dogs. Mm -hmm. And also like only having the one eye, like, like his no eye side had to be closest to like the wall, like that you were walking, right. or, like the buildings that you yeah. were walking. And if someone cut him on that side, like if someone tried to like pass us to the right, 
he would literally like go into like fight or flight protection mm. mode. Like, so like when people would approach me for a selfie and he like, you've just, it, I'm actually getting chills talking about it. And to this day mm. with my other dogs, if someone approaches one of my other dogs, like I still have that part in me that's like, <gasps> don't touch. Like you can't, he's not. But then like all these three dogs, like we've had them since they were teeny tiny puppies and they just aren't scared of people like that. But like Pablo mm. had this whole history that like we didn't really understand. And it's just, it really was like such, I feel like I learned so much, but I kind of, felt similarly about the idea of like rehoming. Like I learned a lot from that about Pablo. Cause I remember we had this trainer. She's like, I know you probably got this dog to like go on brunch and like take your dog to brunch and like take your dog to New York and like, you know, have photo shoots. And I was like, actually I didn't like, I just really wanted to adopt a dog and I'm willing to do anything to be the home for him. But now it's like, I kind of get it because it is like a two way street. Like you have to be the right fit for that dog. And it takes a minute with what I was saying about rehoming, like thoughts, feelings as someone who studies this all the time, like, like not that it's like right and wrong, black and white, but like, what do you think? (laughs) I don't think it's wrong to rehome dogs. I think It's an incredibly difficult thing to do because even if your kinship with a dog that's like not meshing well with your life, even if it's not going great, you develop feelings for them. You care for them. You want it to go well. But I, I don't know, even with like human relationships, I'm, I'm realizing you can't, you can't keep dragging something out in the hopes that things will change. Yeah. You have to love them for who they are and yes. be able to provide them with what they need now in front of you. I still pay for all of his vet stuff and I pay for his food and I like, I basically just like pay his rent and he really loves his like new family. And, but I still am like sad, clearly not <laughs> processed. So we briefly discussed with Elliot Schrafer that some of us can actually find joy in being compared to an animal. For others, that comparison can be a weapon. Uh, how do we see this reality play out with human canine kinship? So I have this memory of when I was like a young teenager and I was growing up in suburban Toronto and it was Labor Day. A white Canadian politician went on TV to criticize Asian convenience store owners for keeping their businesses open on Labor Day by saying Asians work like dogs on national television. And it's literally dehumanizing, right? Like it turns Asian people into a non-human animal. And I think that was actually my first experience of being compared to an animal in a like a really insulting way and meant to be in an insulting way. Fuck that guy. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, the worst. So what does that dynamic reveal about how humans see other humans? I think it shows like the way of the world as envisioned by a lot of people in power. I guess we could call it like the normative view of the world where non-human animals are seen as somehow lesser than humans and some humans are seen as lesser than other humans. It's like a supremacist and hierarchical way of looking at the world and the beings that inhabit it. And also like reduces all of those beings to like either their ability to work or reproduce. And if you fall outside of those, then you must be like fundamentally or like, you know, genetically at your core, like wrong and either needs to be like done away with or sorted out or something. It's like really super like inhumane. Mm -hmm. It really reveals like this, like complete lack of empathy or compassion. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it has very little tolerance for any kind of difference. So during the 2020 uprisings for racial justice, you observed people weaponizing their love for dogs against protesters, specifically protesters of color. Can you share more of your insights here? So there were some incidents in the UK with like riot police animals and protesters during the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. And this like wasn't the first time there was an altercation between police animals and protesters, of course, but particularly during lockdown when I was doing some digital ethnographic fieldwork, I came across a lot of people on social media platforms who use this violence against police animals as a justification to then dehumanize the protesters. And really interestingly, by calling them animals, it took a while for me to wrap my head around this because they were people who claimed to love animals and were fighting to protect these police animals, but then to flip it around and say, oh, like you are the real animals. So I was like, well, what's that about? Well, I need to understand that. So in the protests of 2020, tell me one more time. There were some incidents, I believe, of like a horse, like a police horse that got spooked and like the policewoman like fell off the horse and the protesters were seen as like the the people who like instigated the horse to be spooked. Yeah. And so then they were like, you heard an animal, you're the real animals. And then you were like, exactly. but actually exactly you're like brutalizing it. people who are like standing up for like human life. So how do breeds come into play with human-dog kinship? I think one of the things that I learned in our previous episodes, or it could have been an article that I read since our previous episodes that we've done on dog cognition and, like, dog stuff, but it's, like, that whole idea that, like, you know, labs are good at this, and poodles are really smart, and these dogs are good at that. Like, that was, like, debunked by this piece because it was saying that, like, every dog breed has, like, an entire spectrum within it. So, like, yeah, some collies might be really good at herding sheep, but some probably fucking suck at it, and some are probably super energetic, (laughs) and some probably, like, aren't having that much energy. And, like, some poodles are probably really clever, and other poodles, like, don't know how they got where the door is. Every breed has a spectrum, and, like, and you can't really say that, like, you know, this breed is more aggressive, say, or, like, this breed is more docile. Like, there's a Mm -hmm. spectrum within every single breed. That's true, right? Yeah, totally. I know the article that you're talking about, the the recent study that showed that about like 9% of canine behavior can be attributed to the breed genetics on average. But breed is like such a pervasive concept that people use to look at and understand dogs, right? And as an anthrozoologist and not a geneticist, it's really interesting to me that people really latch on to this idea of breed as quite like a deterministic factor in how they learn about dogs. Like, I'm not above this, right? Like, I'm a border collie person. Ever since <laughs> I got the Embark DNA, I know them all by heart. Like, I literally know mm-hmm. what their results are, are by heart. But then where mm-hmm. I started to get more curious about it was like when I read that article and then reading their Embark, mm-hmm. it's like all that stuff that they've typed out about, you know, collies are known for this and they're like... It's true, but it's only like 9% true in determining what their behavior will be. So it's like, don't attach too much to like, it doesn't really totally matter. It's unless it's like, you know, you have a teeny house. So you want, you know, like size range, like those sorts of things. But like, Mm -hmm. so as far as like behavior, it's not really like an accurate predictor. Yeah, exactly. And like, even if they do happen to exhibit certain behavior, we don't really know if it's because of their breed or something else. It's like, you know, the classic like nature versus nurture that plays into this as well. And 
you know, like a lot of people say things like, I'm like, I'm a spaniel person. I'm a golden retriever person. And I think what's interesting to me here is like dog breeds become somebody's identity like that. It's not just about like preferences either because dog people would also describe themselves in terms of dog breeds according to like their personality. I think there's like a parks and recreation episode where they talk about like what kind of dog everyone is like working in that government office. And like Leslie turns out to be a border collie because she's a workaholic and yeah, like things like that. So people do that all the time. And I think it's a fun thing to do, but almost like it's really similar to me in my head somehow as like astrology. Like, oh, like I'm like this because I'm a Pisces. It's because my, you know, rising is in whatever. Yes, it is also just like interesting how much we talk about that. I think one thing we we already kind of touched on was like the adopt, don't shop thing and our shifting feelings on that. But how can seeing someone's dog affect how we see them? I know for me, like people, like I tend to judge them in my head even when I try not to. Mm. We see that a lot with like small dogs. Like, like if a grown man has a small dog, like he's seen as like more effeminate. How else does seeing someone's dog affect how we see them? I think it does present us with a certain kind of bias. Like you said, you know, a, a grown man with a small dog or you know, there's racial elements to that as well. So like black people, black men specifically with like pit bulls are seen as more aggressive. People assume that they're involved in things like dog fighting. But, you know, for example, there are also people who flaunt like status dogs or use dogs to like intimidate others. And of course, like breed plays a huge role in this. But I think what really affects how we see people, or at least for me, is how they actually interact with their dogs how they treat their dogs. It doesn't necessarily have to come with like overtly positive or negative connotations, but I think it does tell us a lot about what kind of person they are. Mm. I think a lot about how some people would like absolutely refuse to give their dogs like any human food or like let them on any furniture. And there's nothing like inherently wrong with it. But I personally think that dogs like don't live long enough to enjoy everything that they deserve. So I tend to spoil them a little bit. I indulge my dog. So Frank gets his like pizza crust and little bits of hot dog, steak, or like whatever that I'm having, as long as it's not going to be like fatally toxic. And he gets to be on my bed when I play the piano for him, my audience of one. (laughs) And I think that says a lot about what kind of person I am too. You know what I mean? Oh my God, that's really cute. Yeah, I... I'm much more of like a dog bed person or like a get in my bed person. Um, But then our dog trainer says that sometimes it makes them a little like elevation is like a thing. So then we like try to have Mm -hmm. boundaries, but like I just kind of want to cuddle with them all the time, but it's like whatever. You've also written about the COVID-19 pandemic and what it revealed about human dog kinship. One of the papers you wrote involved loneliness. Can you tell us what is the story around proximal loneliness? So it's, it's my own theory. (laughs) If I may. Yeah. Um, It refers to a kind of loneliness that stems from this lack of like close or proximal presence or contact. So it's different from other kinds of loneliness that have been theorized. For example, like personal loneliness, social loneliness or cultural loneliness that stems from lack of belonging or lack of like what you have in like family or friends or community. But I think what's different about proximal loneliness is that you can still feel proximally lonely even when you do have a good sense of belonging with family and friends and community because it is really about like sensorial needs of being close to another living thing. 
And maybe it's like perhaps even more cruel that like you can have the family, friends and community, but you can't really engage them in like sensorially significant ways. So during the pandemic, like here in Scotland with the social distancing measures, I've had a lot of experiences where Frank and I like ran into friends on the street going for a walk, but we had to kind of like stand two meters apart and basically like scream at each other. Like, you know, in the Scottish wind, like we can't really hear anything. It's pouring and we couldn't hug. We couldn't hang out. We couldn't like do anything really. And I couldn't, you know, see my mom who lives in Seoul for years because of travel restrictions. So we once had a dinner together over FaceTime and That was like a moment that I just felt so lonely was like, I saw all of this food on the family dinner table and I could see it. I could hear them like eating and chatting, but I realized like I couldn't smell the food. I couldn't taste the food. Like there were missing senses and yeah, that just made me feel so lonely. Is that loneliness? Do you feel, or have you observed like unique to humans or do dogs experience that too? I think dogs do experience it, even if it manifests maybe in different ways, or maybe like we can't perfectly understand loneliness as it works in dogs. But, you know, like separation anxiety, I think is one of the symptoms of their loneliness. Like a lot of trainers and behaviorists, for example, warned people about lockdown puppies who will like develop severe separation anxiety issues because people would be working from home for months, if not years. But then all of a sudden they were going back to the office, going back to work, and the dogs have known nothing else in their lives, right? So yeah. they they cry, they they shred things in the home. I've seen a dog literally tear a hole in the wall. <laughs> like Georgie just... is our newest baby, and he has like the most naturally occurring separation anxiety of any dog we've had. He will like thump his body into like either side of the kennel. Like if you like put him in the kennel to like eat his breakfast or whatever. Like he he's fine if he's around you, but if he's not, he just shits his pants. But we're having to work through that because we don't want him to be like that, obviously. So like he has gotten a lot better, but I've just never had a dog who was like born with it. But he was like like usually like Elton and Rose are like, thank God, like an hour away from these fuckers and they like love their kennel. They're like, yeah, I get like a little <laughs> bit of downtime. They like, they like, they run in there and they're like, give me my little bone in 30 minutes. Like I need a nap. George is like, please don't. I don't ever want to go in there. Like he hates it. Um, But he's like, yeah. you gotta get, you know, but we're working on it. He's, but he's like our naturally most uh needy baby. So hmm. you note that care is quote, not just nice things we do, but also practices that are vital to the relationships that make up the very fibers of our lives. How is this care central to human dog kinship? Well, some of the things that we do, like in order to care for our dogs, aren't really pretty, right? Like the everyday act of picking up their poop or like clipping. So for Frank, it's like clipping their nails. And you know how some dogs just like yelp even before the nail clipper touches their nails? That's Frank. He's just like, (laughs) I'm like, stop, you're breaking my heart. (laughs) But yeah, like the the everyday that accumulate to make up our kinship, like isn't always unicorns and rainbows, but I don't know. Like, what do they say again? What's the phrase? Like, there's no rainbows without the rain. Like, yes. this, like seemingly unpleasant things can make for really necessary conditions for wonderful things to flourish. And I think a lot of these like gross aspects of our kinship lead to a thriving kinship. And so it's like, 
almost taking that and extending that to humans, to other humans and to ourselves that like, my therapist always says like, relationships often grow through disruption or like relationships grow through disruption. It's not always Mm -hmm. rainbows and butterflies. Sometimes things do get messy and they can be disruptive, but it's like, if you can stay compassionate, resilient in yourself, you know, calm enough to know that that is part of the beauty that makes up, you know, the corticopia of emotions that inform our kinship with each other. Absolutely. And I think once we realize that we are caught in this like inextricable circuit of care and response that isn't going to be perfect all the time, we we realize that we are bound to each other to try anyway, again and again and again. So I think it's fascinating that you approach your work from this obviously like academic, very informed, like research oriented space, but you're also a visual artist. Like your artwork is incredible. It is beautiful. It is giving David Hockney on 2023. I, it is just amazing. It's just, it's so amazing. I also like really need to commission a piece with all of my babies in like some cool, like I really want one. If you're taking commissions, I'm just putting it out there. I Um, am. (laughs) Yeah. So like, please like sign me up. I need it. And like the bigger, the better. How are you exploring human canine kinship through your visual art? Because I feel like I noticed a lot of Frank cameos Indeed. in your work. Yep. <laughs> I I first started using visual art as a means to explore this kinship because of a huge writer's block that I had. I just like couldn't write. And I just like felt so frustrated in my writing. The words weren't coming out right. My thinking felt really dull. My theoretical framing felt really stodgy. So I don't really know what compelled me, but I just like started drawing Frank in what I call my domestic fantasy settings. Like one of my favorite things to do is like go on Pinterest and look at beautiful homes that I would love to live in and just like draw something similarly. Um, And one of my thematic interests in my research is the role of imagination in more than human kinship. And what I'm doing through these imaginary illustrations is using this like speculative thinking, not just as an analytical tool to understand dogs academically, but as a practice. So I draw my like fantasy living room filled with houseplants, art, like my favorite kind of furniture. And Frank and his stuff feature very prominently even in these imaginary contexts. And I think art has basically helped me practice what I preach as an ethnographer. Ah, that's really cool. It's like really <laughs> heavy you. and it's really cool. So is it almost like a, like as compared to your anthrozoology work, is it almost like manifesting? Is it giving like manifest, like let me draw out my best life because you're going to do like 10 best selling books on this. And like, <laughs> yes, and like you will be in that house. Like that will be your house. And Frank is going to be like living that high dog life on like a boucle furniture that is like (laughs) oh my god yes yes i love that furniture is my favorite (laughs) that is spoken by someone who does not have cats because they (laughs) just unless you have these like really fierce things that i have which are these like scratching posts that you can put on the corners Mm. of your couches so they fuck up that and i just say they really work like i have saved like two couches that would have otherwise been murdered years and years and years ago like because of these like it has like a wedge that you like put under the like leg of the couch or like holds it, you know, and then it's like a 90 mm-hmm. degree angle of like scratching post that goes on like the corner. It, yeah. If you're a cat person and you've seen those on like your Instagram or whatever, it is not a gimmick. Get into it. 
It will save your couches. (laughs) And then you could have a bouquet couch and not be sad. What have you learned about human dog kinship from your art practice? I think my like anthrozoology work and my art practice are quite closely connected. I mean, as, as you can see, but I, I think I've learned not to like discount this importance of just trying and practicing and keeping up with it, whether things are going well or badly, being patient with yourself first and foremost and showing yourself some grace when you fall. And extending this patience and grace to your kin, whether it's a human kin or non-human kin, it's really more about like feeling and embodying than it is about thinking and intellectualizing. And I think this, I learned like more from playing the piano, actually. I've been playing since I was a little kid and it's something that I've kept up all my life, but I really came back to it more seriously since I started the PhD. But I like approach my art with the same kind of attitude that like it's something that allows me to develop and express my perspectives more wholly and not just in thoughts and words, something that makes me feel things, makes other people feel things. And it draws me into being really present in the time that I'm never going to get back once it passes. I almost feel like that about getting curious. Like it's mm. where I come to do my art and process and learn and stay engaged and present. And there's like nothing else I would rather do. That is... So cool. I love, thank you. So where can we follow you? What's next for you and your work? Like work in the fan club, um, (laughs) gather, where can we keep following you? My illustration work, you can follow me at Ode to Dogs. It's O-D-E-T-O dogs on Instagram. And yeah, like I think I really want to keep expanding my repertoire in both my research and my art through whichever kind of opportunities that present themselves. I would like to publish my writing and artwork in a book. So I'm looking for a literary agent um, who might be interested in a series of ethnographic essays and illustrations about dogs. If anyone's listening and interested, let me know. We're getting published. We're going to keep up our illustrations and we're following at Ode to Dogs. Yeah. And my music is something that I would also like to explore more in conjunction with my research. I'm I'm always like writing songs about Frank. So maybe I'll try to compile in an album at some point. I love to teach, whether it's in a university classroom or through podcasts like this. And I just like, I just have to say like, thank you so much for having me on the show. Cause like, if somebody told me at the beginning of my PhD that like, I was going to be talking to Jonathan Badness about dogs, like I would be like, you're crazy. Like, don't know. Uh... No, thank you so much for sharing your scholarship and your work (laughs) with us. It's incredible. I love how your brain thinks, moves, processes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Like, just really incredible. Thank you so, 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 so much. Thank you. Yes. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Maeve Han. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Oh, 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 yeah, oh, whoa. Thanks to her so much for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us for more on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousJBN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. You are the love of my life. You're so perfect and cute in every single way. You know that it's true.